Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. I'm Elizabeth Woodson, and I am so excited to be back today with Adam and Tamarcus. How are y'all doing? Good. Pretty We've good. missed you. I've missed y'all too. It's good to be back. In this episode, we have a conversation with Andy Crouch about his new book, The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. Andy, it is a great privilege to have you here. I have read several of your books, have benefited from your wisdom. So mm. I'm excited to talk to you today. All I know saying those things, it's like, he's like, I'm just a guy who writes, <laughs> but you have had an impact on me. So I like to oh, say man. those things. But Whoa. for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, can you just tell us a little bit about you and what was the heart behind this new book? What made you want to write this one? Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, uh, very briefly, I, I mean, in my kind of adult life, I spent 10 years in ministry with college students. Then I spent 15 plus years in journalism, kind of as trying to connect faith and culture, just like you all do on this podcast. Uh, And then I've gotten to spend the past five years working with entrepreneurs in particular uh, with an organization called Praxis, where I'm the partner for theology and culture. And along the way, part of what I've done when I feel like I have to is write books. I try to avoid writing books for as long as I can <laughs> because it is the hardest thing I do. Mm. Um, but every once in a while, I feel like, oh, there's something really important that we need to talk about. Uh, my very first book was so close to the heart of what you all do. It's called Culture Making. It's mm-hmm. about kind of our calling, not just to criticize culture or consume culture, but actually create culture. Then I felt like I needed to write a book about power. So I wrote this book called Playing God. But for the last, uh, gosh, five plus years, I've been thinking we really need a new frame for how we think about technology. So I wrote a book called The TechWise Family that's a very practical, specific book uh, for parents in particular about how to think about putting technology in its proper place in the home. But this book, The Life We're Looking For, is like the bigger picture. It's not just for families, not just for parents. It's definitely not just about screens or screen time or that kind of thing. It's really about like, where is this story taking us as human beings? And is it turning out to be so good for us? And if not, because I think it's not turning out to be as good as we probably thought it would be, um, how could we turn around and how could we redesign? So that's really the ultimate kind of uh, end game of this book in a way. Yeah. Man, it sounds like you you got that across. Um Man, the picture you draw at the very beginning of, uh, man, the line just stuck with me all the way through is we come into the world looking for a face. Mm. Um, I just yes. thought that was so powerful. And it it seems like yeah, you just, everything kind of spilled out of this idea. And early you made a um, kind of a, a distinction between being in a personalized world um, <laughs> and a personal world. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and how does that um, play into um, what you just described? Yeah, yeah. So I do begin the book with this kind of human quest, really the quest to be a person. Mm. You know, we're, I mean, we are persons, whether we like it or not, or whether we go on a quest or not, it is mm. it is what we are. But there's also this kind of invitation in being a person to to develop our our connection to other people. This is why we arrive in the world as babies looking for a face, looking for recognition, looking for that, for that connection. But I think what's happened, especially once we got the screens, I'll say I think the screens accelerated some things that already were happening. 
um, is we were given this option of a world that actually feels kind of personal. And the word I use for it in the book is personalized, mm-hmm. uh, like you said to Marcus. Um, it's personalized, but it's actually just a simulation. So this is when Siri says, hi, Andy, you know, <laughs> would you like me to <laughs> turn on the lights for you or whatever? It feels like she's talking to me. Siri's female on my phone. You can decide what you want. You can have her be British or Australian or whatever, you know. Um, But uh, it's not real. It's not a real person. So it's a simulation of a personal relationship. Hmm. And I actually think more and more of our lives take place in this simulation layer where I feel like I'm making a real difference. I feel even recognized and seen in a certain way. But that is often coming at the expense of actual presence, actual personal recognition, and ultimately real deep relationship, which is actually what we're all still hungry for. Like Mm -hmm. none of us are actually happy having Siri be our best friend, at least not yet. And, you know, the dream is, well, eventually she'll be so good at it that (laughs) we don't need people. I think that dream is the wrong direction to say the least. Yeah. I was actually going to ask that. I got that feeling. I was trying to think of what like the tech person would say. I don't, in other words, Uh, you know, when you, I don't think anyone working in tech, maybe I could be wrong. I don't know, but I don't, I don't know many, (laughs) um, the ones who I do know, they're not out there trying to um, create synthetic interactions that make us less human or something. They're not like, it's not nefarious. They're trying to solve problems and they're thinking, how can we connect individuals? And it's almost this accident. But I wonder if they start from the wrong premise, which you alluded to there. But, and and maybe I'm just cynical. Maybe I'm just cynical, but will technology ever progress to the level where we where the synthetic will be so real that we may that it may provide the face we're looking for and i kept thinking to myself no no it it will never and i i was wondering what your thought on is you know what's your thought on that mm. well i might be um a little more worried not that it will ever give us what we truly want, but that it will become a social and economic imperative to settle for what technology offers. Right. Mm. We're already seeing this in a nation like Japan, where care of elders is a big issue because of the sort of uh, the shape of the demographic pyramid, which is upside down in Japan, where you have all these people who are aging and very few young people. And, um, There is no doubt what is best for us when we reach the last kind of act of our lives, the the era of what's sometimes called senescence, the the end of life. Um, What's best is to be in a multi-generational household with uh, ideally grandchildren or nieces and nephews or grandnieces and nephews cared for by the next generations. This is what every human being would say is best. Mm -hmm. In Japan, that's almost literally impossible to pull off. Mm. And so they are at the forefront of introducing these companion robots. And for whatever reason, Japanese culture seems especially open to these kinds of substitutions. And it's never going to be presented as, well, this is actually better. Well, maybe it will be, but it will mostly be presented as, well, this is just the way the world works now. Mm. And of course you would rather have human relationship, but this little robotic seal that you can kind of caress and it will, it'll seem to respond to you. It'll give you just enough simulation. You'll be okay. Mm. And my concern, Adam is 
actually a lot of us are already living that in certain ways. In other words, we are settling for a kind of virtual drug that is just enough of the sense of significance, of status, of importance, of efficacy in the world that we want as human beings, that that we actually live in the simulation layer to a great extent already. Uh, it's just going to get, it's just going to creep into more and more parts of our lives if, if we are not, if we don't turn around and make some different choices. It's really, it's really frightening, but I'm glad you went there because that's what I was, yeah. Sounds like this like perpetual state of middle school where it's like, I don't really want to like, do the thing but it's like i'm afraid that if i don't like i won't like everything will just like pass by me oh, yeah. like you get into oh, this yeah. state of like i yes like i have to be on my phone or else yeah. i won't know the thing and then i can't do that and it's it's a it's the double whammy of like i want to be able to connect and i don't feel connected doing it but i feel like if i don't do it i won't be able to connect exactly it's just yeah it's never yeah. actually giving you what you mm. you think it wants yeah, and 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 you brought this up, um, Andy. But this idea that the the technology that we use doesn't actually give us enough time to consider the cost of using the technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of built yeah. into it because, for me, as I read it and I think about our listeners and I think about you know this idea of formation, which is a huge conversation right now. You know, what does mm. it mean for us? Like, what is the good life? What is this place of wholeness? And so you talk about this heart, heart mind, soul, strength this holistic um, way of being that we can't mm. get from uh, the technology. Technology promises to give it to us, um, but we don't realize the cost. And so can you talk more about that? And just this, yes. This design that we have and what we give up mm. by consuming the things we think will actually give it to us, but won't. Mm. Yeah. In the book, I, I pick up on this language that I think is widely used by the people who develop technology and maybe even more used by the people who sell the technology to the end users, which is the idea of superpowers. Like, wouldn't you like to have superpowers? And all of us are like, well, tell me more. I mean, maybe I would. <laughs> um, but the problem is, I think it's uh, it's not that um, it's it, it's not that it's wrong for human beings to want to extend their capabilities in the world. I think we are, this is part of our being in the image of God, actually. Like we have a significant mandate as human beings to rule over creation, to have dominion over creation that is genuinely given us by God. And to do that, we all sense, well, I'm not enough all by myself to do that. The question is, what's the pathway to becoming enough? And the promise of superpowers is roughly speaking that that there's a kind of a shortcut to this effortless power that you'll just be able to wish that something were so, and it'll be so you'll be able to want, you know, I, I talk even about something as simple as getting in a car and pressing the accelerator, you know, you just move your foot, this tiny little amount, and it moves like way faster. You couldn't push it that fast. You can pedal that fast if you were on a bicycle or whatever, but that accelerator pedal gives you, it's a superpower. It's like, wow, all I have to do is just, essentially wish for it to be, and it comes to be. But you trade away really significant parts of being human, most Mm. notably the development of your own strength. So Mm. the reality is if we spent all our time using our, what um, my friend Al Jacobs calls it, our proper powers as opposed to superpowers. That is Mm. the things we were actually given as endowments of being human by God, which include our strength as well as our heart and our soul and our mind. Well, we'd spend a lot of time walking, Maybe we'd sometimes get on a horse, use a domesticated animal. Maybe we'd use a bicycle where you still have to be involved. None of these are superpower-based modes. 
And all of them actually develop your strength as you do them. As you walk, your strength, your balance, your agility are naturally developed. As you ride a bicycle, which is actually the next thing I'm going to do today, as soon as we're <laughs> done talking, it's the end of the day for me here. I'm going to get on my bike. It's, I'm not going to get on a motorcycle. I'm not going to get in a car. I'm going to get on this thing that actually develops me in, I, I would say, heart, soul, mind, and strength. But when I get in a car, uh, I can go way faster and further than I can on a bike. But with less effort and less development and, uh, as you said, Elizabeth, kind of formation of me as a person. So the thing we bargain away to get superpowers is formation of our proper powers. Mm. That, that, that idea of effortless power. I, this chapter, by the way, just kind of like blew my mind and I started mm -hmm. getting, you know, going down that rabbit trail of like, um, wow, may, maybe actually being superhuman is to not be human at all. And uh -huh. the idea of I remember reading yes. somewhere it may I think you maybe alluded to it in here, but I remember reading somewhere just the psychological problem of of um, effortless power that when mm -hmm. you that our bodies are made so that when you put out a great deal of effort, there's a dopamine hit that happens, and it's only right. supposed to come after this the yes. exertion, right? Exertion. Exactly, and so you get this reward that alleviates and helps you kind of almost think about the the effort you had to put in in a more positive light rather than like Sisyphus pushing something up a hill. And now you have this, yeah. you know, now you have this opposite problem where you get a reward without ever with no with nothing exertion and, yes. and what, how the psychological damage that that's doing to have dopamine hit after dopamine hit by a scroll, by a like button, yes. or whatever. And, I, you know, could you speak to that a little bit? I mean, it's just a different, it's a different aspect to what we were just talking about a second no, ago. No, no, no. You put it so well. I, I think of it as the, the fast path to dopamine and the slow path. Right, or, right. Or you think of it more precisely as the endorphin path or just the straight stimulation path. Right. So, you know, dopamine is this neurotransmitter that it is the way we uh, acquire a, a mind-body sensation that things are going well. Right. And it's good to have, we need a way of sensing, like is, are things going well or poorly? <laughs> um, but there are two paths to it. And one is through these kind of uh, things that directly in, instantly release the dopamine. But then there's this fascinating thing, which is endorphins, which are st stress hormones. There's hormones that help our bodies handle often uh, actual physical pain. So endorphins are released big time when a, a woman is in labor with a child. Endorphins are released when you're lifting weights, when you're doing something physically strenuous, and they help your body handle the, the pain response so that you can press through it and uh, have a developmental uh, experience on the other end. Um, and then on the other side of the endorphin response comes a dopamine response, but you got there through something that actually built muscle, built even human connection in a way in childbirth or whatever, um, rather than through this thing that short circuits that mm. and leaves you feeling better, but without becoming better. Oh. Mm. <laughs> so to feel without becoming mm. in some ways is like the great temptation of our time. Cause there's, we've got emotional satiation and satisfaction available to us, whether you like distraction or like whatever form of satiation you want, you can feed it digitally now, but without becoming a, a different person, without going on a growth journey. Mm. Um, 
And the other thing I talk about in the book is that this, this, these shortcuts, especially the things we call drugs that literally plug mm-hmm. into the system directly, which I don't think social media is quite like that yet, though when we get the implant, maybe it will be, <laughs> um, uh, where you'll feel each like button. It'll just like, you'll get a little hit every time someone <laughs> likes your Instagram post. Wow. Um, but the, the things that really hijack it, the other thing they, they, dis, they disable is the learning system. So normally... When we eat too much candy, we're like, ugh, I feel sick afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a healthy response. And then you don't necessarily want to do that again. But there are some pathways to dopamine that hijack the learning system so that you never actually learn mm. that it wasn't good. And this is how addiction works. And mm. all of us have fallen into it with one drug of choice or another. Right. And and we know every time at the end of that hit, we're, we're like, oh, 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 I shouldn't do that again. But but literally at a neurological level, we have not gone through the learning to say, actually, I will not do that again because I learned. Mm. So we need a lot more slow path to dopamine in our lives. Oh. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's why I go out on a bike ride every day is to like get those endorphins going. I push myself up a hill. It's not fun in the moment. But the well-being, the clarity of who I am as a creature, my mm. ability to be present to other people is so enhanced by that in a way that scrolling will never do. Right. And I want to press into that a little bit more of the the slow and like what we're becoming. Um, I mm. just felt pounded by it. Uh, you gave an example of like the um, like if the Roomba in the in the <laughs> house and how it, you know, it can, you know, it can do stuff faster. But it's like, what is it? Is it forcing me to be better? It made me think about. I think about this often with like my son, I have a three-year-old and it's like, uh-huh. there are things that like I can do really fast if I just do it by myself. And he's like, yes. I want to help. Can I? And it's like, if he helps me sweep the floor, that just became like an hour long. <laughs> task. Um, and this is like, this is a turn, but it made me think like, you know, if the, if the Roomba stops working, like I can like, you know, curse it and hit it. And, you know, call the Ooh. manufacturer and whatever. And it's like, it didn't, that didn't require like, um, yeah, goodness from me. Mm. But like, wow. if I respond to my son like that, wow. it's like, man, that, like all of a sudden I'm checked. Like, so I'm thinking of not only of how like mm-hmm. it affects our becoming, but how do you see this? Like, as we think about it broadly, um, how we interact with the environment and people around us, um, mm. how can this kind of like short pathway uh, cause us to dehumanize others in a way. Mm. That's quite deep because, um, I mean, for one thing, the word robot itself, as I write about in the book, it, it was coined by a Czech playwright named Karl Chapek about a hundred years ago. And uh, he was writing this play about the invention of creatures that would kind of do the difficult work for human beings. And he needed a word. So his brother suggested this, this word in the Czech language or the Slavic languages, which means serf or, or slave. So it's the word for an indentured or enslaved person uh, in Czech, robota. Um, and the dream of robots <laughs> is the dream essentially of being able to enslave the world. Mm. Now it's not initially the dream of enslaving other persons. It's the dream of, no, no, wouldn't it be nice to just be able to have the world do for us what, you know, the, the drudgery that we would rather not do. Mm. But, but I have come to believe that lurking behind that, because the truth is the Roomba will never be as good as we expect, and the robots will never be quite as effective as we want them to be, and the magic will never work quite as well as we wish it would, we will be very tempted to press other people into service 
to meet our need for effortless power mm. in ways that dehumanized them. Man. So Jeff Bezos, uh, like uh, we're in 2022 now, I think it was in 2015 or 2016, he announced this amazing program to have drone delivery of you know uh, packages. Well, they have some test flights going now, but he, he thought it would be two or three years. It's been six years and counting. Um, and who knows whether we'll ever have octocopters dropping off packages. I suppose we might. We might. But in the meantime, Amazon developed this system that doesn't use drones as in robotic drones. It uses people that Amazon, to be frank, treats like drones. In other words, they are monitored by a computational system. Every step is prescribed. You, know, you all know you have to bring the package to the door, take a picture. All that is tracked by an algorithm. No time built in for relationship, for being human, for the rhythms of human life, uh, up to and including relieving oneself, mm. uh, just the, the bodily processes, There's that's not programmed in. And what I, what I say in the book is, look, we already have drones. Mm. <laughs> They're not flying copters. They're people who um, are treated by the system as nothing other than machines. Now, they're not literally enslaved. They, they can leave and take another job. And in fact, there's huge turnover because no one wants to do this job longer than they have to. But, it, but however long you do it, you're being dehumanized the whole time. It did not have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. But it is what we will get if we want a world of robots. We won't actually necessarily get high-functioning robots. We will get low-functioning human beings who have been forced to act like machines uh, to give us the kind of effortless power that we dream of having. And it's like in one breath, I want to be like, that's terrible. And then also I'm like, but I'm the one who like won't order a book off Amazon unless it uh, says next day delivery. Next, <laughs> yes. yes. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, it's the web. Yeah. You know, it's, it requires us to live with intentionality. Yeah. Right. And be willing to yes. submit to the lack of convenience because that's uh -huh. the trade-off. I get convenience, mm -hmm. but then you got all this other stuff that I don't really think about. Um, because it is, I'm, I am waiting for, if it has not already been filmed, the documentary about this is how you get your stuff so quick. This is the cost wow. of what like you the Like the fast food, whatever it was, like 10 years oh, yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, yeah. That, Super, yeah. We, yeah, 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 yeah. Now we need, like, next day delivery me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, because it's just like people are suffering for convenience. Because, again, wow. that... Wow. Corners have to be cut. Something, there is a cost. And really, it forces us to think about something we don't want to think about. Because again, like you said to Marcus, your response is like, that's horrible. Is that there are influences and um, motivations that have nothing to do with your flourishing and well-being. And yes. as we, can you speak to that? And just <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yeah. mind as believers we need to have. You talk about this idea of mammon exactly. in your book. And just really, that's driving a lot of the things that aren't growing us into who we are called to be. But we don't want to pay attention to it because it's not pleasant conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so... Two two ways into that. You know, one thing that that really struck me a few years ago, there's a, a Christian theologian named Craig Gay who teaches at Regent College who wrote a book called Modern Technology and the Human Future. And Craig, I think, is one of the most important kind of interpreters of this world for our moment. And he pointed out, points out in that book, that technology is not actually developed with a view toward an, to uh, improving and deepening what he calls ordinary embodied human existence. Mm -hmm. That's not really, now sometimes it has benefits for ordinary embodied human existence, but it's sort of incidental. And as I reflect on Craig's book and other, and other streams of this, I realized, oh, I think 
I think there's a word for what technology, what is actually always behind what we call technological, technological progress. And it is the one thing, I guess it's a thing, maybe it's more than a thing, that Jesus said you couldn't serve God and this at the same time. And it's mammon, which I do not think is just a neutral word for money. I think it's actually a word, and in the book, I kind of try to make this case. It, I actually think it's, it's a word for the, uh, I would say, demonic power behind money or that attaches itself to money and that whispers through the medium of money, you can have power without relationship and abundance without dependence. There is a force at work in the world connected to the, the enemy of all that is good that harnesses itself to our economic systems and says, if you serve me, you'll have effortless power, independent power, uh, independent abundance, and you will not need people. Uh, that is, you won't need relationships. You won't need bodies because mammon, I think the two things mammon really hates are, are relationships and, and the material world. So mammon wants to make everything immaterial, invisible. It's the prince of the power of the air in a way like this idea that you know the demons were not created with bodies, so they resent that human beings have them, that the image bearers of God have them, and they, they have no love, so they resent love, and they try to er erode and erase love from the human story. And that is what mammon is doing in our world. Every day it wakes up, or I don't know if it ever goes to sleep, it, it is always pursuing that. And most of our technology is driven by those priorities, not by what's actually good for persons especially all persons. I mean, some of us temporarily benefit, though even those of us who benefit, there, there are these weird costs that we pay. Like we feel more lonely, anxious, and depressed than, than our grandparents could ever have imagined. They'd look at all the stuff we have and the convenience we have. They'd be like, you must be so happy. Like, uh, no, I'm not happy. And we're the winners. We're the ones who are actually benefiting from this. The people who are being pressed into service as the robots, the drones of it, are, are the ones who really bear the greatest cost. And Mammon wants you to never think about that when you hit that, you know, next day delivery button. Sorry, that was a little heavy and <laughs> no, long also. No, it's <laughs> really good. And I, I keep thinking about that. You talk about abundance without dependence. We're talking about the cost of convenience. And sometimes it sounds like we're trying to, it, it feels like this. I read another book talking about how we need to do hard things. The comfort mm -hmm. crisis mm -hmm. is what it's called. And it's like all about how we yeah, all are yeah, doing yeah. is seeking comfort, but actually doing hard things and putting ourselves in uncomfortable situations is so much better for us and all that. And it's just striking me that, you know, it feels like shaking. How do you convince somebody to be uncomfortable? How do you convince somebody like, hey, don't do next day shipping? Or, you know, yeah. it feels almost like the old man shaking his fist in the wind a little bit. But I wonder, like, like, and I think we're saying, you are saying all the right things and you're saying it in a way that's convincing <laughs> to me, but like, maybe just take this one idea, abundance without dependence. Can you mine the depths of that a little bit more for us and tell us what, what, what's the cost mm. of abundance without dependence? Wow. Why should we choose dependence? Why should we? Yeah, maybe, maybe we should rethink this, Adam. Actually, I'm changing my mind. No, 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 it's the paradox, right? It's the paradox. In my mind, I'm thinking it's the paradox. You think without dependence, you are free because yes. dependence sounds like slavery. But what yes. we know deep down is uh, we're all dependent on something and being dependent wow. to the right thing makes us free, right? 
Wow. Right. Wow. Oh, that's really, actually, that's really good. So, so I think there's, maybe there's two, two things we could say, even say to ourselves, like when we're tempted to choose the easy way. And, and so one is the only way to have love and trust is through dependence. Mm. So if you want a loveless, trustless life, boy, does mammon have a deal for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So if you want to be maximally lonely, though surrounded by goods and services, um, choose the path of mammon. But I think the deeper thing actually is what you just said, Adam. It's that you will not actually be free. Uh, you, uh, at the other, on the other end of this transaction, you will actually be more dependent and more constricted and restrained than you are before the transaction. Mm. Um and it's this paradox that it is in entrusting myself to others that I, I'm not set. I am not set free from vulnerability. I'm not set free from mortality, like my own demise. I'm not set free of, of proper fear of hard and bad things happening because they will. But in relationship with other people, those things become bearable and mm. even sanctified and and the unexpected source of blessing in a way that is very hard to imagine until you've lived it. Mm. Um, and that dream of evading and escaping all that is actually is going to enslave me to powers that wish no good for me mm. are going to cause more suffering and I'll have less resources to deal with whatever comes my way than if I choose the way of relationship, obviously mm. not just with other people, but with my creator. Right. Um, and and I really think this is why you can't serve God and man. Like they, they are just on totally opposite tracks. They they want to take you in totally different directions. Uh, one deeper and deeper into love and trust. The other further and further away from any kind of relationship or being mm. known or loved or cared for in any way. And you just can't serve both because you can't go in both directions. You're either going toward one or you're going toward the other. Beautiful. Mm. It's it's believing what Jesus says when he right. Yeah. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I yes. come to give you life and life yeah. abundantly. And right? that abundantly, right? Yeah. There is abundance. There, there is it. abundance. It's just not in yep. what Mammon promises. Mm. Um, and maybe maybe along those lines, um, I kept thinking as I was reading your book, uh, especially in a chapter where you, you talk about um, uh, uh, the body of the Messiah in the, mm-hmm. uh, in the empire. In the emperor's court. Yeah, in the emperor's yeah. court. Was like, man, there was there was this point, um, and I know when I grew, I grew up in youth group, and our, we hmm. did all kinds of apologetics, and we were looking at logical proofs, and it was kind of like that was what you know that our generation needed to hear this logical explanation hmm. of the gospel. And hmm. I wonder, I wonder, do you think the apologetic that society needs today is this kind of embodied? presence wow. in way um, as you described kind of in that chapter like is that going to be the mm-hmm. more compelling influence that um, wins people to the gospel wow what a good observation and question um, I almost wonder if it always has been that mm. um, and that the, the I the the environment in which apologetics thrived, um, it's not you know, loving God includes loving God with all our mind. So exactly. it's not wrong to think through the kinds of questions that apologetics uh, helps us think through. But 
I just think most people's deepest hunger is to be known and then loved in spite of being known. <laughs> in mm. other words, if you really knew me and you're not going to get to know me on a podcast because we're safely separated by a couple thousand miles <laughs> and we're all on our best behavior. But if you really knew me and if I really knew you, then the question be would become, but can you still love me knowing everything there is to know about me? And mm. the answer is only by the grace of God, but yes, by the grace of God. Mm. And a community that lives that way, and in particular, that lives that way across the stratification of a world that does not treat people equally, does not mm. treat everyone with regard and with dignity, that treats some people as robots and others as kind of masters of the universe. That kind of community, I think, is perennially the way the gospel is validated mm. in the world. <laughs> so that was true. And that's why I write about, you know, it's funny in this book. I, I'm sure it's confusing to some readers. It's a, ostensibly a book about technology, but then I spend about a third of the book talking about the first century in the Roman empire, mm. because I want to show actually, these are not new issues. This, mm. this, this sort of misguided quest for power was just as true of Rome in its own way and had just as um, disastrous implications for human beings as our time does. And in that moment arose a community who just dealt with one another and with their neighbors and with God in a totally different way from the world around them. And out of that come very legitimate, like rational questions. Well, but wait, why do you believe this Jesus was raised from the dead? But the, the, um, the curiosity is, is animated by seeing the way they love each other, seeing the way they live together, seeing who they call brother and sister, mm. <laughs> you know, and, and then it's like, well, but wait, wait, why, how can this be? And, and that's when the rational question comes in. Um, I think that maybe is always true. That's really good. Yeah. During uh, the past few weeks, I've been spending a couple weeks visiting family and uh, saw this in a commercial on TV. And I don't see as many commercials that actively like you are used for evangelism purposes. Uh -huh. But it was, this, it was a great commercial, but the, the, the tagline was like, Jesus gets you. Like oh, Jesus, yeah, yeah. this this idea of community, yeah. you have a place of belonging. And to me, I just felt like it was it was poignant for the cultural moment of mm -hmm. a generation who is super connected but super disconnected. Mm -hmm. And yeah, what people yeah, yeah. want is a place of belonging, just to really just yeah. to echo what you were just saying, Andy. Wow. Yeah, yeah, community yeah. and so much so that's how people are advertising to give uh space for the gospel. Right. So right. When, you, when you think about uh the average person, our use of technology, the decisions we're making on a daily basis, trying to do the best we can, kind of what are some things, maybe one or two things that we can think through to determine, am I using this device or this program for flourishing or am I hmm. being devoured by a system that doesn't mean for my good? <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually, it's relatively simple in a way. Um, we are meant to love with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So as I'm, so we're recording this on Zoom. I'm looking into a little camera. I'm, uh, I'm seeing your faces. Uh, you know, our, the listeners are just hearing our voices. Is this helping me grow? Is it, and I actually think the important question is not just, um, is it using my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Is it developing? Is mm. it actually stretching me, kind of in, inducing that endorphin response of, oh, this is hard, but it's good. And on the other side, I'm going to feel better. So I would say, uh, this is stretching my mind. 
as you all, as, as I listen, as we interact, uh, I would say it's doing that. So we're using technology for that. Great. Let's keep doing that. It's, I, it's, it's stretching my heart. I mean, like just getting little glimpses of, as I listen and, and to some extent, see your faces of who you are, what your story is. It, it, it sort of awakens a, a love for you, a love for people who've lived where you've lived and what you've done. It's so this is stretching my heart. Is it touching my soul? And yes, it is. Now, the one thing it's really not doing very well is we're sitting, right? <laughs> and and it's interesting, you know, for most of history, if you wanted to have a great conversation, you went for a walk. Yeah. Jesus did this all the time, or he takes his disciples up a mountain to teach them, right? Well, think they had to walk <laughs> up the mountain. It gets in a boat. He's like, hey, how about if we row out and go into a storm together, right? And the the Greek philosophers... Um, we're known as the peripatetics because they walk. It mean it just means they walked around when when you when they really wanted to think together. They got up and walked around. The only reason we're actually sitting right now is because it's for the convenience of the devices. It's not because it makes a better conversation. Actually, this would be better if we could be together outdoors, walking and talking. And we're doing this because we haven't developed technology that really fully uses our strength while it uses our minds. And hmm. this is the a frontier where we need engineers to be working because the, the biggest single, well, I don't know, there's a lot of problems, but one big problem with technology right now is so much of it requires inactivity, which is not, it's not good actually for any of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to be as inactive as we often are. But what I just sort of took you through is my own reflection, like, okay, three out of the four is not bad, right? So I would say, I don't have even, I really don't have the slightest hesitation about using technology in the way we're doing it. We're using all kinds of stacks of technology, electricity, electronics, you know, digital, all that, because it's developing our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as other people listen, we hope it will do the same thing. On the other hand, I could close this window and pull up, you know, YouTube and just sort of mindlessly follow the algorithm and let mm. it distract me for the same amount of time. And that wouldn't necessarily develop any of those things. So the same exact device can either be used in a very developmental way in which I'm growing and I'm also growing a relationship with other people, or it can be used in a very isolating way that's not developmental. And and we really basically need to ask, uh, get in the habit, you might say, of asking kind of on a regular basis, am I being grown here? Am I growing? Um, uh, and so I talk in the book about the difference. I, I sort of draw this distinction between devices, which generally give us superpowers and displace and replace human beings versus instruments, which is, yeah. can also be high technology, but actually fully involve us in the world. Mm. And we just need to be using more and more instruments and fewer and fewer devices uh, on a daily basis. I love Does that help? No, that's very helpful. I think I think what's uh, something you also point out in your book, but even just to what you described, there's a sense in which that can what you described as a very like daily um, time in and time out as I'm engaging with the world around me and technology and devices, um, processing those kinds of questions can feel yeah. small. Maybe maybe there's somebody mm. else, like you said, that's maybe more nostalgic, and it's like we just need to get rid of the whole. <laughs> Right. And it's, we're probably not moving in that direction. Um, it A lot of this looks like you talk about uh, the difference between uh, making an impact and uh, influence. Right. That there is a there's a way in which uh, an impact kind of resembles that like magic of like getting everything yes. immediate. We want the, you know, the convenience. Um, yes. I'm thinking in terms of right as we're, you know, 
church leaders, church members, um, yeah. as we're trying to cast a vision for our local churches and I guess the kind of influence that God has called yes. us to make in the world. Well, oh, could you just give some words of like encouraging, if you were speaking to a congregation of like, um, I don't know, encouraging us in the in the realm of like, hey, this influence is, it's a slow process. Maybe yeah. you don't see the immediate change tomorrow, but like right. it's worth it in the long haul. Oh man, I really think we need to recover the biblical, <laughs> the biblical time horizons, which are multi-generational. So mm. the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, uh, it has this kind of prologue in a way that sets up the problem. By Genesis 11, the whole world is Babel. It's incidentally a quite technological world. We've got, you know, certain building techniques and so forth. So let's make a tower with its top in the heavens and make a name for ourselves and not be scattered and all that. And and the whole thing seems like it's uh, come to a total dead end in terms of God's intention. And then Genesis 12 and following is really the story of God's redemptive intervention, the beginning, right? Well, that's a three or really four generation story. Jacob, Isaac, sorry, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's sons by the end of Genesis. And it is only when you get to Joseph and his brothers that you've even begun to repair the mess that we have in Genesis 11. Mm. And that goes all the way back to the original mess of Cain and Abel in in Genesis uh, three and four. And we want impact. Impact is force over time. So the higher the force and the shorter the time, the greater the impact. (laughs) And Mm. our modern world thinks that's power. Like, oh man, get it done really fast and at really large scale. But you look at the story of God's redemptive acts in history, and it is slow. (laughs) (laughs) Like the Exodus, like you would say, well, the Exodus is kind of impactful, like the whole army is drowned in one night and so forth. But then it's 40 years. God's like, okay, it's going to take 40 years even to get these people ready for the promised land. Mm. Now, how many of us do anything with a 40-year horizon? The biblical language of blessing is may you see your children's children. So three generations is like the unit of blessing for the biblical mind. Um, And then we look at the first Christians and the fascinating thing is while there were impactful moments in individuals' lives. So Paul, well, Saul, I guess, encounters Jesus and it turns him around. It's a very yeah, it's a very striking moment. Peter has that vision on Cornelius's or, or uh, on the rooftop and goes to Cornelius's house. That's another impactful thing, right? So I'm not saying that for individuals, there aren't these moments that are like defining and, and conversion moments. But if you ask what's the cultural influence of those, it's so slow. A hundred years into the story, there's no one outside the Christians themselves who's writing about these people. Like no mm-hmm. one's saying, oh, you know, the really important thing that's happening right now is the rise of a small movement named after Jesus of Nazareth that's eventually going to take over the Roman Empire and change the course of history. No one is saying that. But it's happening. It's just not happening in an impact way. It's happening in an influence way. Um, So I think, Tamarcus, you asked, like, what would the counsel be for those of us? As we think about our churches, I I always want us to think, like, what's the third generation vision? What are Mm -hmm. we, not our own kids, but our kids' kids? Because that's like just at the horizon of even my imagination. I don't have grandchildren yet. I might someday reasonably soon. We'll see what happens with my kids. But um, like it takes an effort to invest myself in things that would last that long. But that's the only 
horizon on which culture actually changes is multiple generations. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's just a long range vision of what we do and build here while yes. during our time on earth, but also the interconnectedness. Yes, and yes, so yes. I'm creating an environment and it's our job as believers to create an environment that generations after us will thrive. Yes. And, yes. um, I want to end us here with this last question, last thought, because it is how can we take what we've learned in our conversation in your book and just just being aware of the technology we're using and seeing what's coming down the line. Mm. And so, Tamarcus, mm. you mm. had a really great question about something that's popping up. Meta, you want to talk about that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I I just really just want to hear you expound um, maybe on your idea. What are some... What are some hidden dangers? Maybe even as we early in the conversation, we talked about things that, um, you know, oh, you you get promised that you'll get this and you, you know, you won't have to do this and this will be easier. Um, mm. So maybe as we're thinking about meta and all of the things that it'll <laughs> unlock and it'll allow us to do and that we won't have to do. Uh, <laughs> what is the kind of dark side of things that maybe we're not talking about or people aren't thinking through of potential things that could take away? I don't know if you've thought much yeah, yeah. Uh, thought into that, but just. Want to hear your thoughts? Well, you know, if by Meta you're thinking in particular of kind of the rebranding of Facebook to Meta, so that Facebook can turn its attention to the to offering us the metaverse, this yeah. kind of virtual world that, that's imagined will be so rewarding to be part of. Um, I think it's actually a good um, symbol as well as reality of a bigger thing that is probably the the thing we must resist. And and I guess. Uh, if I can use this word, I would call it commodification. So more and more of our lives is being drawn into the logic of the market. And I tell you, when you enter the metaverse, you will not think a thought, express an emotion, make a move without it being owned by Meta Inc., Mm. You, when you move as a human being through the actual world we live in, you are in God's world, much of which is not commodified. Our our relationships, when we have friend, real friends, are not commodified. We don't exchange tokens to be one another's friends. A parent and a child do not exchange, you know, money to parent and child each other. In the metaverse, all that will be owned, like literally the property of a company, which means all the logic of the metaverse from the ground up. I mean, you know, I, when we get done here in a moment, I'm going to get on my bike. I'm going to ride through a natural world that has trees that no one planted. They just come out of the abundance of the ground. There's nothing in the metaverse that somebody didn't plant and wants an economic reward from, Mm. including you, your avatar, right? So this is going to happen, not just in the metaverse, but it's going to be a continuing trend in our world to draw more and more things that used to happen outside the logic of the market, outside the logic of economic exchange, and in the world of gift, grace, and love, it's all going to get translated into the world of the market. And I think our responsibility as human beings, let alone redemptive people, is to say, no, thank you. (laughs) In fact, we are going the opposite direction. We're taking people and places and things that have been commodified, turned into units of economic exchange, and we're reclaiming them as image bearers, as God's creation, as Mm. gifts and grace, rather than as something we've earned. And this is like the logic of salvation by grace, is it never was an economic system. It never was a market. There's no market for love. There's no market for God's love. So um, 
I think the two things are going to happen is greater and greater commodification, also greater and greater and more evident failure modes. This stuff is both going to succeed in very dramatic ways and fail in really dramatic ways. And the people it's going to fail are the most vulnerable, the most marginal, Mm -hmm. the most embedded in historic systems of oppression. Mm. It's not going to get better equally. It's going to get better for a favored few. And God's redemptive people are going to be the whole time saying, you know what? We don't even want that bargain. And it's not that good. Mm. (laughs) Like, it's not going to be that. Look at the video that Mark Zuckerberg made. Like, the richest man in the world wants to turn into a cartoon and awkwardly sort of fly around. Like, you got (laughs) to be kidding me, right? We we just have to say, your dream, your dream is so small. Poor Mark, like, he's the poor guy. Like, this is all he can dream of. Mm. We've got so much more to live for, so Mm. much more to rescue in our world. That's where we need to be, uh, whatever happens with the metaverse. <laughs> Love that. Love, Love that. that. Thank you. What has been helpful for me, I think, in my spiritual formation journey is to be reminded that my spirit, my formation isn't neutral, mm-hmm. that I am being hit with stories wow. every day of where the good life yep. comes from, and yep. that people are not for my good outside of Christ mm. and wow. do not mean me for doing things for my <laughs> get outside of Christ. <laughs> right. And so right. it is this, this need to be intentional, this need to recognize wow. what story I'm consuming and for us yes. to remind ourselves of the story of scripture. And I just love this, this emphasis on the heart, mind, soul strength to be known yeah. and known deeply the love and trust that we are divinely designed with yes. only comes in the model that the divine design is connected to, which is relationships that are grounded in Christ. Yeah, and just yeah, a challenge yeah. for us to not run away because we there is some element of that we have to enter in to use yep. technological devices. The question is, how are we going to do that? And do we do that with an intentionality yeah. to be grounded in the truth of who we're called to be for the flourishing of humanity or for something else? Mm-hmm. And from this conversation, I hope that you as a listener have some tools to walk in the pathway of flourishing. Andy, thank you. Thank you for your wisdom. I know, again, you're like, I'm just talking. Thank you you, so much for your wisdom. This has been amazing. (laughs) What an encouraging conversation. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great to talk with you. Listeners, his book is called The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. We would all encourage you to go and pick it up. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This podcast is made possible because of a team of people behind the scenes. Chris Starrett, Chelsea Conway, Mandy Page, and Brad Weigel. We couldn't do it without them. If you're a follower of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can message us on social. You can also support us on our patron page. Check the show notes for more information. See y'all next time. Maybe we should change that call to check us out on social. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's an instrument. It's an instrument. <laughs>